Hello, welcome to the Skills to Succeed Pre-Innovation Experience Podcast. I have a team here with me who spent the last few weeks buried in this challenge we're looking to solve for Skills to Succeed, which is specifically how do we improve monitoring and evaluation practices in order to measure impact, outcomes, and understand causality. They've scoured the globe looking to bring fresh insight to this challenge and will join me here to discuss some of the highlights of that research. We'll be throwing in quotes from interviews we've run with yourselves, as well as recordings from experts we've spoken to, and even the odd quote from ancient historians, economists and philosophers, just to keep you on your toes. Sources of the facts and figures used in this podcast will be available after the workshop. However, we have altered some of the voices for data protection purposes. So we'll start by digging into the challenges we've heard. We'll then consider the opportunities in the context of the wider trends we're seeing in the world today before identifying and drawing on some of these interesting examples we've found that we think could inspire us all to think differently about the issue. So guys, let's get started. Measuring impact, it's quite a challenge, huh? I've heard skills to succeed aren't really the only ones trying to get to grips with this. Absolutely right, Ben. Um, Certainly the CEO of Escape the City is in the same boat. It's funny, we're actually in the midst of a mini cultural crisis that was sparked by uh, an old farmer who crashed one of the team micro-adventures and asked a very good question. By the way, a micro-adventure is an improvised escape from the office, perhaps to go and sleep under the stars for a night. So you want to help one million people escape to find meaningful work. How do you measure that? It's probably our number one challenge, and whilst there are a bunch of proxies, it's difficult to put your finger on exactly what escaped looks like. You know what, this reminds me of a story Ken Robinson narrates about the Beatles. So, Paul McCartney and George Harrison attended the same um, school in Liverpool called the Liverpool Institute. And Robinson interviewed McCartney. So he asks McCartney that when he was in school, did he really enjoy uh, music then? And he said no. He said, well, did your teacher think you had any talent? And again he said no. So Robinson then asks him, Well, did the teacher think that George Harrison had any talent? And again, he said no. When I heard this story, it made me think, if you don't know what to measure or how to do it, then all effort is essentially a shot in the dark. Impact Mm. or no impact, you will never find out. Mm. Yes, didn't Galileo himself say something aligns of, hang on, wait, why don't you hear it from Galileo himself? Measure what is measurable and make measurable what is not so. Let's, let's move on. The challenge is first of all to identify what we want to measure and then figure out exactly how we do it. True, but the nature of the challenge is multidimensional. We need to consider the time lag between training and potential impact. How can we maintain a consistent and strong relationship between all the stakeholders from pre-training to post-impact? This is a very important question, and we should be very careful here, in the sense that what we measure might just be a high correlation, and correlation does not imply causation. A statistically significant, a statistically sound research approach requires us to clearly understand, firstly, what we want to change, and secondly, what we want to measure to prove that change, as well as ensuring we have a large, diverse sample, a control group, and of course, replicable testing methods. Of course, and measurement here is not an exact science. You might not find what you're looking for. Indeed, just because you do things in the right way does not guarantee the results you expect. In fact, you might end up proving the opposite of what you want to believe. Mm. Speaking of believing, there is this elephant we have with us in the room as well. 
It's cost. For sure. IT budgets are a challenge, or in some cases, even non-existent. Currently, we have a very manual, paper-based process of surveys, phone calls, of filling forms by hand, and just in general, it is very difficult to get a hold of people, track them down, and coordinate schedules. Then, of course, there is the issue of consistency. Different partners capture different data, and there are different perspectives of what is good enough in terms of monitoring and evaluation. Is it good enough to track 10 or 20% of the whole beneficiaries? What level, is, would, what level would be significant? How do we do this consistently across different countries and with different partners? Mm, so this could get pretty resource intensive. Absolutely. But then we also need to talk about what, is, what are the right resources? And one of the challenges we've heard is around technical skills. This isn't actually just an issue in the not-for-profit sector, though. According to Nesta, four in five businesses struggle to find digital and analytical talent they need. And by 2020, there could be a shortage of 40 million digitally skilled wow. workers. And so how do charities then attract that talent that they need? Do you want the good news or the bad news? Mm, both. The, probably the good news first. <laughs> okay, so the good news is younger generations are perhaps a little less greedy than their parents were. Uh, most millennials say they value flexible working hours and meaningful work over salary. And the bad news? But they also rate working environment highly. And by that we mean working in an innovative, fast-paced culture with the autonomy and freedom to try new things. And that's hardly something NGOs are renowned for, right? Exactly. There is a culture of reluctance to adopt new technologies. Okay, well, we'll come on to more of that later. So, we've, we've had a few challenges that we need to consider. That's true, but there is a potentially saving grace. There are always a few tech champions in an organisation, and senior level engagement is key. Great. So, we've got some senior level engagement with everyone coming together on Thursday. So, why don't we remind ourselves why we're here again? M&E is at the top of everyone's mind. Accenture are well positioned to be a leader in this space. Yes, and there is the potential that if you can crack this, it can generate huge benefits. It would certainly be a powerful story to tell the UN or the World Bank. Absolutely. So why now, though? I mean, organisations have been trying to do this for decades, right? Well, yes, they have, but now corporate donor expectations are changing. And because our habits as citizens and as consumers are changing, there's a sense that the data is out there to do it. We all spend a good proportion of our lives online now. You've heard the stat that more people have access to a mobile phone than a toothbrush. I haven't, it's disgusting. And you've seen the YouTube video of today's children, right? To them, a magazine that doesn't respond when you touch an image is just a broken iPad. And that people are falling off cliffs playing Pokemon Go at the moment. I know, exactly. And we document our lives on social media, whether that's Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, WhatsApp or Snap. So... Eric Schmidt estimated that more data is created every two days now than was ever created between the dawn of civilization and 2003. So the question becomes, how can skills to succeed use this data to greater effect? Yeah, I, I think there are three areas to consider here. Firstly, technology provides an opportunity for radical disruption to traditional ways of doing things, as we've seen through social media and other platforms like Airbnb, Uber, Snapchat, etc. 
Secondly, our use of data and analytics can now give us insights into people's actual behaviour rather than self-declared beliefs in surveys, which we've seen corporates in industries from banking to fashion using to great effect. And the third thing is digital technology is fundamentally changing our learning needs and the way education is delivered. So technology provides the opportunity for radical disruption. Airbnb is the fourth largest hotel provider and how many hotels does it own? None. Uber is the largest taxi provider, owns no taxis. Facebook and Twitter are the largest media outlets, but create no content. These are all examples of the way that technology platforms can disrupt traditional industries. Yeah, I get that, but how does this really apply now to skills to succeed? Well, Ben, who's going to be the largest education provider and own no content? Today we have an opportunity to look at how you leverage technology to create massive impact. How would an Uber or a Facebook think about this challenge? Just some food for thought. Mm. So the fantastic thing about analytics capabilities right now is that there's this huge pile of ever-growing data sets that we've just referred to, and this is the crucial bit. It is not merely information about people's beliefs, but predominantly about their behavior. Now, this has been a major change in the last decade or so, and now we have reliable data about behavior as opposed to self-declared beliefs. As we mentioned earlier, filling forms, surveys, and standardized assessments are neither adequate nor accurate anymore. Mm, I think we can certainly all realize now that it isn't just the volume of data that's exploded, but the, the quality and type of data yeah. um, that we collect today is unprecedented. Yes, absolutely, that is correct. This is being used by banks to determine who will pay back their loans, by health insurance to determine who is more likely to have diabetes. You can even now find out what disease you're likely to get later in life with things like 23andMe. So measuring impact for charities should be no different. And we can see that happening in lots of businesses right now that have disrupted established monopolies. Yeah. Yeah? Netflix, Amazon curate recommendations from what users have watched, browsed, bought, rated. Yeah, exactly. And Amazon is going even a step further. They're leveraging what data they already have to create what is called anticipatory shipping, which essentially means that Amazon will ship the product before the customers actually <laughs> press the buy button. And similarly, Google results are different for each user and take into account not only your previous search history, but location, browser type, device type, and, and previously clicked links, among other things. <laughs> but this personalization does create potential risks I think we need to be aware of. Yeah, that's right. So the retailer Target created an algorithm that predicted when you're likely to be pregnant and then sent vouchers. Um, it got one teenage girl into a lot of trouble with her father. <laughs> this is yeah, something I guess that this level of personalization that we thought was impossible only two decades ago. You know, and the use of analytics and personalization is in education is going too, right? Yeah, and, and there are several interesting examples. So, for example, at Purdue University, they identify learners at risk um, academically uh, by combining predictive modeling with data mining. So each learner is assigned a risk group determined by a predictive learner's success algorithm. And specific intervention strategies are in place to help each of those risk groups. Um, similarly, New York Institute of Technology has a problem with retention and wish to intervene early with at-risk students. So they leverage the experience of their staff to refine the predictive algorithms to identify those uh, students with a high degree of accuracy. So, 
you know, you can see that predictive analytics can be that first step towards identify the varying needs of different students. Mm, which leads us nicely onto point three and how you mentioned digital is really changing how we think about and deliver education. That couldn't be more true. So digital has become a key enabler that, first of all, allows each pupil greater diversity for learning. Then it also enhances interactivity between individual students and individual teachers. And lastly, it provides a space for personalised, flexible learning, which extends beyond the classroom walls. And this is a critical component. Learning should not be confined to the formal teaching environment or the curriculum. So, have you heard of the 1990 principle? No, I haven't. So, basically, this says that only about 1% of young people are using technology to create. 9% are curating, collecting and critiquing, while 90% are just consuming. 90% of the youth are watching kittens on YouTube or liking whatever they like on Facebook or bursting jelly beans and throwing birds across the screen. Then this is perhaps not really the best use of digital technologies. We have such powerful tools at our disposal and our youth are constantly connected through these tools. But what are we doing to leverage this technology to create impact or even measure it? Mm. You see, learning which flows from instructor to learner is necessary, but not sufficient, at least not anymore. We must allow the flow of technology, skills and all kinds of learning from learner to learner and even learner to instructor. This enablement, this facilitation will lead us to the impact that we are seeking. There is a great opportunity to allow students to create knowledge from the constant flow of information that is around them 24-7. Interesting, but wouldn't that make measuring you know, even more complicated? That might be true. However, in every innovative approach, some of the things that we're looking to measure will be hard, if not impossible, to quantify. But that doesn't mean that they don't matter. Mm, so you're saying this could provide an opportunity to rethink how we measure and evaluate programmes in the first place? I think so, Ben. Monitoring and evaluation of past pupils is currently either manual and paper-based effort or non-existent in some parts. Most schools have active alumni associations, but most schools like charities have the challenge around IT support budgets. And there are new technologies now that could help bridge these gaps. Um, such as? Well, there are numerous innovative cloud-based platforms that could give teachers, parents and administrators the ability to better monitor and track the prog progress of students in real time. Mm, these are interesting, but it still feels like we're just scratching the surface a little bit here. So, I'm going to switch gears and ask the contrarian question. What if we don't hop on this digital bandwagon we keep banging on about? What if we don't do anything and just keep going as we are? Well, there are a number of ways you can look at this. Economically speaking, we've seen a massive increase in youth unemployment across the world in the last few years. You think Ireland's youth unemployment rate of 15.3% as of May 2016 is high, but consider some of our European neighbours. Now let's hear from some of our European neighbours. At the top, we've got Greece with 50.4%. Second, we've got Spain with 43.9%. Third, we've got Italy with 36.9%. Last, we have Croatia with 31.4%. And this is expected to get worse, right? Oh, yes. It is estimated that 47% actually of jobs could be automated within 20 years. So with self-driving and autonomous cars, what will happen to taxi drivers or, Uber or bus drivers, for example? Hmm. In 2012, think about this. Amazon had 1,000 robots in its warehouses. 
and now the number is closer to 10,000. Yeah, and we've seen the recent job losses at Lloyd's Banking Group, other banks, you've seen physical stores closing, and software algorithms replacing process-based tasks. Yes, software is eating pretty much everything, so AI chatbots are replacing call center staff, and the list goes on. I even heard lawyers were under threat. <laughs> well, I don't know. I think lawyers always seem to win. They'll argue their way out of it. <laughs> well, maybe. Uh, but, but the point is that we need to rethink as humans what our primary differentiator will be. We can't take wage cuts or work longer hours to differentiate ourselves from machines. Mm, I understand, but didn't people make similar protestations at the time of the Industrial Revolution? And didn't that actually create more jobs for people? Well, yes, but not immediately. So, in fact, there was a huge unrest at the time, riots, strikes, and rampant unemployment. So, requiring a massive amount of retraining and reskilling of the labor force was necessary at that time. And today, as we enter a fourth technology revolution, there will need to be even greater focus on training for people in all walks of life, at every stage of their career. It's more critical than ever. This is a societal challenge that is absolutely massive in scale. Um, also, it's worth pointing out that increased unemployment isn't just going to lead to a higher benefit bill. There are wider costs for governments, economies and society as a whole. If a young person doesn't get the education training required to find work or start a business, what happens? They might go on benefits, but also often this is just the start of further social problems. Perhaps linked to alcohol or substance abuse, we see an increased crime rate, which means more money for courts, prisons, rehabilitation, and further down the line, there are increases in mental health problems. And all of these are costs which can be avoided by investing in upfront education and training. Certainly, it's clear that people will need greater access to training and need to be able to adapt. There is now a demand for people to be educated from a very young age in digital skills like coding, website development, app, and game creation. There is some good news as well. So there are movements like Coder Dojo who are addressing it. Within the Coder Dojo movement, there is a focus on community, peer learning, youth mentoring, and self-ed learning, with an emphasis on showing how coding is a force for change in the world. That's great, but aren't our governments and lots of education and training systems still lagging a bit behind here. Yes, it, it seems there is often a bit of a disconnect between those creating the training and those going through it. Young people in schools today will retire around the year 2070. Do, do we have any idea how the world will look like in half a century? I don't. Absolutely not. There's definitely a disconnect between the digital phobic advisors and the digital savvy students. But this goes back, I guess, to the question of who will be the all-powerful education provider who provides no content, right? And a lot of highly valuable training is available for free nowadays. Google provides free coding lessons on Udacity. There's Code Academy, Khan Academy, and many, many more. Yes, the, the challenge is not as much content creation as it is delivering it in the right manner to get the maximum impact. This is interesting, uh, but we're just drifting off a little bit. So I want to take a step back for a second and look at how Skills to Succeed currently operate. Yeah, so Skills to Succeed uh, fund and provide the resources to NGO partners who then deliver training programs to vulnerable and disadvantaged people. It is a great program, but if you have that many partners around the world, it can be difficult to ensure that everyone shares the same objectives and visions. 
there is a risk that there is siloed expertise and understanding and what does success look like to all the various st different stakeholders that's true i mean we're talking about a very broad user base right to use a corporate term and it's is that too broad yes i mean every age group almost every country you know there is definitely a case for some sort of segmentation so if you pick an age group for maximum impact let's say 18 to 24 and address the challenge for them first then you can look to see what challenges or what changes are required for other segments and we need to understand what are the interactions pain points and opportunities along the journey which the students go through mm. and so i guess in the end it all boils down to understanding precisely what we want to measure and we keep coming back to those two key yeah, questions so how will we know we are serving our purpose and what is the data we need to capture to do so say how do others do this Let's look outside the sector and see what works elsewhere. The balanced scorecard approach is used by accountants and lots of CSR programs, where it is difficult to put your finger on one specific measure for social or environmental impact, or even something like workforce engagement. Even if it is possible to measure a single number, say for something like a product's carbon footprint, it is sometimes more helpful to measure a series of leading and lagging indicators to create a more complete picture. There is another interesting framework. It is called the Kirkpatrick model. This is a great tool to start thinking about measurement and evaluation in skills training programs. So the framework has four distinct evaluation tiers, reaction, learning, behavior, and then finally results. So at the reaction stage, it measures the learner's overall experience immediately after the lesson. The idea is to gather thoughts and feelings about the lesson, the instructor, the content, the venue, and then you move on to the next level, which is learning itself. The aim, is, the aim here is to capture the change in knowledge, skills or capabilities as a direct result of that training. Then we move on to measuring behavior. This is primarily an assessment of the application of learning. So the objective can also include measuring the change in conduct and overall behavior as a result of the training. And finally, the impact is measured by the results. This is mainly the delta in performance and how any changes have benefited the bottom line. So in this case, this might be employment status, income. Mm, and now we get into those concerns around data privacy, security, governance, which are real for this sector, and especially working with vulnerable people. Oh, we need to fully appreciate that. Yes, absolutely. But we need to break this down. So in terms of data security and data governance, for personally identifiable data, there needs to be clear rules for keeping this safe with a clear data governance program, a data controller and tools such as encryption and restricted access. That's best practice in corporates like banks and hospitals who look after sensitive personal data. Mm, and how do these companies then respect data privacy? Well, in the corporate world, if you sign up to a service, you implicitly agree to allow the company to use your data to provide the service you sign up for. It's in the small print of your terms and conditions when you sign up. So for skills to succeed or their partner organizations, it might be best to address this upfront um, in the terms and conditions for joining a course worded very simply in plain English, stating clearly the, the declaration to the beneficiary, what data is captured and how it is used. So here I guess we could mean anything that helps someone to get a job or start a business. In theory, yes. 
Only when you're using data for marketing purposes do you require explicit consent. That's interesting. So ultimately, we're looking at that question of what is the value proposition to the beneficiary for sharing their data? Exactly. And then think about what supports could skills to succeed offer partners to capture the required data? And what are all the points on the journey that students interact with different partners? Mm, interesting. Well, I think we've kind of come full circle on this. And that question remains, why do charities seem to be a little behind on this? You know, corporates have, have been doing this for years, right? Well, it seems there are no easy answers, so maybe we need to turn some orthodoxies around. And remind me what an orthodoxy is again. Uh, it's a deeply held, widely shared belief that holds you back. Perhaps it's something driven by a bad experience in the past, perhaps something that used to be true but hasn't been tested in a while or is no longer relevant. And so could you just share a couple of examples maybe? Well, a good one would be taxi drivers need to study the knowledge for three years in London to provide a service people value. Mm, we've seen that's not true, yeah. The world is flat. Mm. Cars need drivers. Suitcases must be carried. <laughs> okay, so now make this relevant. Vulnerable people don't want to share their data. And that sounds straight for the jugular. If we want to try something that doesn't work, we, we don't get funding next year. Interesting. So do you sense there's a fear of failure? It certainly wouldn't be easy to innovate knowing you were one mistake away from losing funding for a project. Mm. There's definitely the potential for failure when you are trying new things, so we'd need a partner to be very supportive of that. There you have it. And this isn't just skills to succeed and their partners, by the way. This is an epidemic. Dan Palata, in one of the most popular TED Talks of all time, The Way We Think About Charity Is Dead Wrong, says... So Disney can make a new $200 million movie that flops, and nobody calls the attorney general. But you do a little $1 million community fundraiser for the poor, and it doesn't produce a 75% profit to the cause in the first 12 months, and your character's called into question. So how do you square that? You probably need to do things on a small scale first. You test and learn, and we need to reevaluate what we mean by failure. Did you learn from failure? If you did, that's okay, but it's a cultural issue. Facebook have this culture of failing forward. And what do you mean by failing forward exactly? As in, fail fast, fail quickly, move on and learn from it. Tata Steel Group even have a prize for the best failed idea. <laughs> a good way to move forward is to perhaps write or draw what failure would look like and then go a step further and ask what What's the worst that could happen post-failure? Usually, understanding failure and its consequences mitigates most of the fear. I recognise this. Didn't you do that recently with your CV? <laughs> I did. So I imagined if my startup failed and I was sacked from Accenture, <laughs> what would my CV look like a year from now? And then I sat back and asked myself, what would I do? And was it bad? Because you do know if this podcast flops, <laughs> no, right? I think I'd survive better. <laughs> so... Interesting. I'm going to have to wrap this up there. We've got a few seconds left. So what one piece of advice would you both like to leave us with? This risk aversion in the sector is stifling innovation and driving learning underground. And yet we know that we need to create organisational cultures that encourage the risk taking, creativity and continuous adaption to solve the challenge we have. So I'm going to quote Machiavelli, who believed there were two types of mistakes you can make. Mistakes of ambition and mistakes of sloth. Make mistakes of ambition, not mistakes of sloth. Develop the strength to do bold things, 
not the strength to suffer. I agree. And I'd like to add, don't be constrained by what you believe to be true. Constantly challenge your beliefs, test them in the real world, and you might be surprised by what you discover. It reminds me of a quote from a former executive at a Research in Motion. Um, this was like right after the fall of uh, BlackBerry. He said, it wasn't that we stopped listening to our customers. We just thought we knew better than them. Great. Thanks for that, guys. Really interesting. Now, listeners, if you've made it this far, it is over to you. We want to know what surprised you and excited you or even scared you about this podcast. And finally, what motivates you to act now and not tomorrow? We'll be asking you to share your thoughts to help kick off the day. Finally, all that's left to do is thank our panellists, um, apologise for our attempts at humour, and thank you for listening. We hope you found this podcast interesting or at least mildly useful, and we've certainly enjoyed developing our thinking over the last few weeks, so we look forward to challenging yourselves to do the same in the workshop on Thursday. Until then, goodbye.